something that can occur is, um, you know, if someone um, has, say, aches and pains or um, problems that could actually signify a, a serious complication of pregnancy, they are sometimes dismissed as um, being related to one's weight rather than, you know, a medical condition or a symptom of something um, serious potentially going on. Something that as providers we can do is ensure that we are, you know, taking every complaint seriously and evaluating it and not um, prejudging the cause of um, the symptom or complaint just based on someone's weight. On today's episode of the Women's Health Cast, I spoke with Dr. Katie Antoni about some of the concerns or considerations for pregnant people with overweight or obesity and how to have a healthy, safe pregnancy at any weight. Dr. Antoni is a maternal fetal medicine physician in the UW Department of OBGYN, and she recently earned her board certification in obesity medicine. From the University of Wisconsin-Madison Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology, I'm Jackie Askins, and you're listening to the Women's Health Cast. I am very excited to welcome Dr. Katie Antoni back to the podcast. It's been a couple years since we have talked. Um, today, she is joining us to talk about healthy pregnancy at any size, pregnancy and overweight. We're going to learn a lot from her. Um, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for inviting me to join you in the podcast. I um, got to talk to you recently about a board certification that you earned. Um, so you earned your board certification in obesity medicine, and that made me really want to talk to you about this topic in particular, especially hearing you um, talk about things you learned during that certification, including, you know, approaching patients in like a very person-centered way, being um, mindful and using like non-stigmatizing language, approaching conversations around weight and pregnancy. I kind of want to start by asking, you know, what does that conversation look like for you? So how do you bring it up and approach your patients being very mindful of like weight stigma in our society? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, before I talk about how I start the actual conversation, I wanted to emphasize a little bit that reducing stigma about weight bias begins before the patient even gets to the examination room to talk to me. Um, it needs to kind of start at the front door of the clinic. Maybe, you know, for example, many waiting rooms don't have seating options that accommodate everyone. Some only have kind of narrow seats with armrests. Um, and having a variety of seating options, both like with and without armrests and of various sizes, allows everyone to feel welcome um, at a given clinic and like their seating needs are being met. Um, so they're not feeling like they're walking into an obstacle course that they have to navigate um, to even sit down at the clinic. Um, also, once in the clinic room, having an appropriate scale to weigh all the patients is important. It can be really traumatizing to step on a scale and discover that the scale maxes out at a given weight um, that's lower than one's own weight. Um, and kind of along that same vein, having appropriately sized blood pressure cuffs and other equipment in the room and not having to go like running all over clinic to get things um, is helpful at making, um, making everyone feel welcome um, and helps kind of like normalize everything. Now, once the patient's in the room, they've had their vitals taken, then they actually start to talk to me. And regarding the discussion about weight, classically, the advice is to always ask patients permission to talk about their weight. Um, oftentimes, patients are referred to me specifically to talk about the impact of weight on pregnancy. Um, so I try to tie this into their pregnancy um, and other things that they're kind of thinking about as much as possible, like 
would it be okay if we talked about how weight impacts pregnancy, some of the monitoring that we do during pregnancy, you know, how that affects um, ultrasounds and um, other testing that we do. Um, since most patients want to know the plan, this is also generally accepted. Another thing I try to do, and with COVID this is a little more tricky, um, but um, as much as possible, I like to try to position myself next to the patient. And I've also kind of created a standardized um, like plan, like a handout that I give to patients that kind of goes through the things we're going to talk about and also has like a little checklist for the plan at the bottom. Um, so that's sort of more like we're working on like this work list or worksheet or plan together um, rather than me like sitting across um, a desk or like lecturing um, at someone. Um, it seems to kind of help um, make it seem a little less um, judgy and a little less um, like I'm giving a lecture and more like something that we're kind of working on together um, discussing the plan. I'm so glad that you mentioned, you know, that the experience of being in a healthcare setting starts the second you walk in through the clinic door and there's all these like steps and moments and spots where people will be that also can affect your experience or your um, like overall takeaway from being in a clinical setting. I am kind of curious, um, so you've talked about it from a provider perspective. From a patient perspective, what do what do we look for as far as like a person-centered, respectful approach from our physician? Um, or what does that not look like? Are there things that are could be, um, I don't want to say maybe like red flags for patients who are moving through these settings too? Mm-hmm. So one kind of subtle but important change is to incorporate person-first language into our discussions with our patients, but also with each other and in our notes. You know, rather than describing someone as an obese person, um, using terminology like person with obesity can be helpful. And that can be helpful like in every single instance that you use um, terminology to um, refer to obesity. Um, because otherwise it might slip in, you know, and you might um, use stigmatizing language um, without intending to do so. Um, and it also kind of helps frame the way um, that we think about it rather than thinking about a person as a condition or a disease, emphasizing the personhood first is critically important. Um, things that are less helpful Im include implying that because someone has obesity that they must also have medical conditions um, that are more common in um, people who have obesity. Just because someone has obesity does not mean that they have diabetes, for example, or will develop gestational diabetes. Um, just because some conditions are more common does not mean they're like a foregone conclusion or anything like that. Um, so making assumptions like that is unfair and um, and just obviously also not true. The um, other things that are helpful are um, being, you know, straightforward and like as transparent as possible. Um, I um, did a, a qualitative um, kind of project where we called patients to ask about, you know, their perceptions of care that they received at, in our clinic. Um, one had said that um, a particular lab had to be drawn, you know, a few different times. And then later, after she looked it up on the internet, she saw that um, that this is more common in, in patients who have obesity, that this particular blood test um, is inconclusive and has to be, you know, redrawn. Um, and she expressed some frustration that you know, this was not mentioned when we called that this lab had to be redrawn. And um, she would have appreciated just kind of like the forthrightness that that was um, why it was being redrawn. 
and so just being transparent about um, um, about like clinical care or um, you know um, what we're doing and why we're doing it can be helpful. I also feel like there's an impression that maybe um, com- how to say complaints or issues like coming into a clinic with an issue or a question um, like it's pretty common or it feels very common to have any question or issue be immediately tied back to weight if someone is overweight. Um, That's true. Um, So something that can occur is, um, you know, if someone um, has, say, aches and pains or um, problems that could actually signify a, a serious complication of pregnancy, they are sometimes dismissed as um, being related to one's weight rather than, you know, a medical condition or a symptom of something um, serious potentially going on. And that's unfortunate. Um, And so um, something that as providers we can do is ensure that we are, you know, taking every complaint seriously and evaluating it and not um, prejudging the cause of um, the symptom or complaint just based on someone's weight. I do have um, a pretty big handful of questions of about sort of the the connection or interplay between weight and pregnancy. Um, I'm hoping we can kind of dive into some of those. I wanted to start with whether weight can affect fertility or ability to become pregnant or um, if it can change like yeah, change that timeline or that process at all? Yeah, that's a really great question. So um, weight can uh, impact fertility, but it doesn't always. Um, Specifically, having obesity can increase the risk of developing um, conditions like polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS, which um, impacts ovulation and can reduce fertility. Um, Losing weight, even 10 to 15% of one's body weight, um, can also result in a resumption of ovulation in someone who was not previously ovulating. However, the flip side of that that I think is also really important to think about is that having obesity or even a higher degree of obesity, such as a a BMI over 50 or 70, does not necessarily mean that someone isn't ovulating or isn't able to become pregnant. And so um, I have um, sometimes seen physicians or other providers not consider things like birth control um, in patients with higher weights because they make kind of the assumption that they're not ovulating um, or, you know, able to... um, become pregnant just based on their weight. And that is certainly not true. And so while it is something that is a risk factor for, um, you know, having reduced fertility, um, it certainly isn't always the case. I wanted to ask about, you know, if, if someone was interested in changing their weight before pregnancy, or if it was recommended to try, um, I guess I have a handful of questions about that. My first question, my first question is, is it you know safe or recommended to to try and lose weight during a pregnancy, or is it better to think about approaching that before becoming pregnant? Great question. And the during pregnancy is a little controversial. So I do I'll answer the question about weight losing weight before pregnancy first. So weight loss before pregnancy is definitely safe. Um, if someone is planning to lose weight by doing bariatric surgery, um, we recommend waiting depending on the guideline you read, anywhere from 12 to up to 24 months after the surgery to try to get pregnant. Um, With other forms of weight loss, no delay is needed unless the patient really wants to reach like a particular target weight or BMI prior to pregnancy. Um, And so, you know, if someone is losing weight um, 
you know, using like changes in activity or um, nutritional intake, um, you know, there's certainly no need to, um, you know, wait after doing that sort of thing. Um, also medications with one exception, which I um, can discuss if you'd like, um, but, you know, most of these medications um, are safe to be used essentially up until someone knows that they're pregnant. Um, regarding, regarding weight loss during pregnancy, this is kind of tricky and controversial. Formally, the Institute of Medicine recommends that all pregnant people um, with obesity gain 11 to 20 pounds across the course of the whole pregnancy. That means like by the time they deliver at full term on their due date. Um, more recent studies have shown that gaining less weight um, than that or even losing a little weight can help reduce the likelihood of developing some of these adverse outcomes that are associated with obesity. However, um, there's also a little higher likelihood that the baby could be um, small. Um, meaning like smaller than we expect for how far along someone is in their pregnancy. So the bottom line is we don't recommend weight loss during pregnancy, but gaining weight, less weight than the formal recommendation is probably okay as long as the baby is growing well. Um, that said, it's, it's really challenging to kind of like limit um, weight gain during pregnancy because it is a time of kind of increased hunger, um, you know, or, you know, being kind of picky about different foods. And so um, it is challenging to lose weight. But the bottom line is if someone is losing weight because of nausea or vomiting, particularly if their BMI is higher, um, as long as they're staying well hydrated um, or, you know, and, and their nutritional intake is, um, you know, well balanced in terms of like the vitamin and mineral content, um, I don't panic about very small amounts of weight loss. But, um, mostly try to target my counseling that gaining, you know, 11 to 20 pounds is what's recommended. Gaining a little less than 11 pounds may be okay as well. Um, if someone was interested, you mentioned a few different um, options or avenues for changing your weight during pregnancy. Um, I guess I'll start with uh, medication options. You mentioned there were a couple sort of medication choices. Um, what do those look like? And then I just want to clarify again, if that someone did use a medication option, um, does it change how they should time their pregnancy or time their conception? Absolutely. So um, there are many medications that can be used for weight loss. Essentially, none of them are recommended to be used during pregnancy. Um, they haven't been studied. Um, and obviously, we also aren't recommending weight loss during pregnancy. And so that's the main reason that they're not um recommended. In terms of kind of actual safety, um, with one exception, which is um, a fentramine topiramate combination, um, they are otherwise like safe to use. They're not um, associated with increased risk of fetal anomalies or things like that. And so they're not anything that needs to be discontinued, you know, weeks or months or anything prior to be to pregnancy. Um, the medication to avoid, as I mentioned, is fentramine topiramate. Um, and this is because topiramate is associated with an increased risk of um, cleft lip and palate in some, but not all studies. Um, I, I think it's worth mentioning that there are some that, um, that there are instances where topiramate would be used during pregnancy for some of the other indications it's used for. Um, and whether or not it's whether or not um, it's really associated with cleft lip and palate is a little um, questionable because some studies have demonstrated it, but not all have. Um, the bottom line is it's um, if someone were to become pregnant while they were on fentramine topiramate, um, the baby having a cleft lip and palate 
is not like a certainty or anything like that. Um, it's something that we can screen for on ultrasound. The incidence of it is only like modestly increased. Um, and so um, if someone were to um, have an unplanned pregnancy while they're on this medication, um, there wouldn't be um, a need to specifically consider termination for that, um, you know, exposure or anything like that. Um, in terms of the, um, because there are so many other medications that work, if someone is planning to lose weight to achieve pregnancy, using essentially any of those other medications would be very reasonable um, because there are so many other options. Um, some of these medications um, are medications for things like diabetes, and so if someone happens to have diabetes, that could be a good option of a medication to use. Um, some of these medications affect, uh, affect um, absorption of um, uh, in the gut, and so that's one that I would also consider kind of stopping a little sooner um, because, um, for example, that medication is Orlistat. Um, it can affect um, absorption of some vitamins that are important, like vitamin A, D, E, and K, the fat-soluble vitamins, and so I would consider stopping that one a little sooner just so that um, vitamin D levels are not affected, but um, there are several other medications that um, that don't, that um, wouldn't need to be stopped in a for a prolonged period of time prior to pregnancy. Other medications that can impact weight um, are things like, for example, metformin, which is a medication for diabetes. That's something that can result in some weight loss, um, but it's safe to be used during pregnancy, most specifically when it's being used to treat things like diabetes and polycystic ovarian syndrome. Other things to think about are if someone has things like high blood pressure. Um, some medications that we use for treating high blood pressure during pregnancy tend to promote weight gain more than others. And so if someone happens to have obesity and high blood pressure, you know, leaning towards the medications that um, result in less incidence of higher weight gain may also um, make sense in those settings. So you had also mentioned um, bariatric surgery as an option that some people might pursue or might not to change weight before pregnancy. And I think you mentioned that there is sort of a, a recommended time frame after surgery before becoming pregnant, so kind of a recommended wait, wait time. So um, if someone undergoes bariatric surgery and specifically like a malabsorptive procedure like a Roux-en-Y, we do recommend waiting one to two years before getting pregnant. The reason for that is because um, while someone is very rapidly losing weight, it you know it can actually affect like you know fetal nutrition um, and weight gain during pregnancy if they become pregnant in those first couple of years um, after the surgery. Most recommendations kind of say 12 to 18 months, although some say up to 24 months. Another thing to think about if someone is getting like a Roux-en-Y or a bariatric surgery is while they are losing that weight, if they previously weren't ovulating, after they lose you know, a significant proportion of their body weight, it's possible that they would start to ovulate again spontaneously. And so if they previously weren't using birth control um, because um, they thought that they weren't, um, that they didn't have much fertility, um, it's a situation where they might that they essentially need to start the birth control when um, they do the surgery because they might spontaneously become fertile during this process as they lose the weight. And so um, there are a fair number of patients who have unplanned pregnancies after undergoing bariatric surgery because they are suddenly fertile when they weren't previously. If someone approached it with lifestyle or behavioral changes like diet or exercise, you know, it sounds like you'd mentioned earlier, it's 
that wouldn't affect like the timing of choosing to become pregnant if you're mostly going through diet and exercise changes. Um, I'm kind of curious if it's recommended or advisable to diet while pregnant or exercise while pregnant. Yeah, that's a great question. And it also kind of depends how you've defined diet. You know, for example, if someone is diagnosed with gestational diabetes, we talk to them about kind of um, controlling carbohydrate intake, you know, and kind of changing like um, the protein content of their diet um, and things like that. However, like things like severe caloric restriction um, as a dietary change is not um, something that we recommend during pregnancy. In terms of physical activity, physical activity is generally safe to continue or even start during pregnancy. Um, I generally recommend avoiding activities with a high chance of trauma, um, but most other activities like walking, swimming, ellipticals, etc., are safe. Um, there are very few small list of conditions for which we'd recommend, you know, reducing activity, and that it, and that's specifically like vigorous exercise, and that's usually not until the third trimester. Um, so generally we do recommend physical activity. It can also increase insulin sensitivity and improve fitness, um, for after the baby is born and after the baby grows into a toddler that needs to be chased everywhere. So I think physical activity is a good place to focus. Um, you know, um, we know that physical activity is less effective for things like, you know, actual weight loss, but, um, during pregnancy, we're not specifically aiming for weight loss. And um, it can be just a good way to kind of increase one's um, aerobic fitness um, in preparation for, for labor and also obviously postpartum life and parenting. Yeah, you know, I kind of figured, I think oftentimes when we talk about like lifestyle and behavioral changes, what we kind of mean is diet and exercise. That's pretty often sort of the coded way that we say diet and exercise. I'm always very reflective that being able to make dietary and exercise changes, changing our exercise habits, it's not equally accessible to all of us. I think about how much time it takes, how much money it takes. There are like location constraints if you're not near a fully stocked grocery store or not near like a fitness facility having, having access to those things. How did those, I guess, differences in access factor into your advice for lifestyle or behavior options when you're, when you're talking with patients? This is something that Madison also has some trouble with, you know, um, access to, um, you know, foods, um, you know, in all neighborhoods, especially like grocery stores and access to um, fresh produce. Um, I'm also mindful that, you know, purchasing fresh produce and vegetables um, and things takes more time, you know, to prepare into, you know, a meal unless you want to eat everything, you know, a bunch of raw vegetables or fruits and things. So, um so that is something that remains a challenge. I know some cities have um, built um, farmers markets that are um, specifically in neighborhoods that are food deserts. Um, one challenge to that is that you know these um, farmers markets are usually only one or two days a week, um, and that may or may not be a time that's convenient for someone to stop by. And so that's one area that I it's hard to address on an individual you know provider patient level, but it's something that um, you know, as a larger system and community could be worked on. Um, in terms of kind of physical activity, those opportunities do also vary a lot based on time, other children, financial constraints. Um, usually what I do is I ask patients what activities they've tried in the past, what worked into their life or what doesn't. Um, I mean, if someone has time and money for a gym membership, that is a great option. Um, that certainly doesn't work for everyone. Um, many patients find that they can actually 
walk their children to school in the morning and then kind of turn that into a 20 or 30 minutes of additional activity if they have time for that. Um, or they build it into like an, a lunch hour. Um, I um, know some parents who have like very small toddlers who don't even go to school. And so sometimes parents do things, patients do things like turning on music and just dancing around in the living room with their kids um, or do recorded videos. Um, and incorporating children can actually be a really nice way of doing it because oftentimes the children really enjoy it and then they want to do it again and again and again every day um, in classic toddler fashion. Um, and it also helps kind of normalize physical activity and exercise as kind of a part of daily life, um, you know, and just something that we always do. Um, that said, I acknowledge that um, there are huge disparities in access to um you know, not only healthy food, but also um, physical activity opportunities. So we've talked about um, how people might change weight before pregnancy if they were interested in doing that. Um, but we didn't talk about why. <laughs> so I think we can maybe pivot into discussing what kinds of possible risks or complications that higher weight or obesity can, can bring for someone headed into pregnancy. So are there risks or complications um, that are maybe more likely but not inevitable for someone who's heading into pregnancy at a higher weight? Yeah, there's um, higher risk of Unfortunately, most of the adverse outcomes that we kind of worry about um, during pregnancy, um, those are things like there's a higher chance of having preterm birth, higher chance of having preeclampsia or high blood pressure, um, higher chance of developing things like gestational diabetes or diabetes that's new during pregnancy, um, higher chance of kind of having a difficult delivery or like a very prolonged labor course, higher chance of the baby kind of getting stuck partway out, um, which is something we definitely try to avoid as much as possible um, because it can be very dangerous for the baby um, and also a higher chance of needing a cesarean. Um, and if someone does end up needing a cesarean section, um, a higher chance of having a serious blood clot afterwards or also a wound infection from the, um, from the cesarean. So higher chance of a lot of the, the, these things. It's not Certainly still doesn't necessarily mean that any of these things will happen, but, um, you know, um, a higher chance among um, patients who have um, obesity than among those who don't. Uh, are there also risks or complications for the fetus then? Yes. Um, unfortunately, there's also a higher chance of congenital anomalies or like birth defects overall. Specific things we worry about are like heart defects or kind of differences in how the heart is shaped. Um, cleft lip and palate, spinal defects, things like where there's like a hole in the um, spinal cord or maybe part of the spine hasn't formed properly, and unfortunately also stillbirth. Another kind of complicating thing on this is completing ultrasounds for patients, especially with like higher degrees of um, obesity, higher BMIs, takes a little bit more time. Um, and we're also more likely to miss anomalies that are present. Um, and this is partly due to just kind of ability of like the ultrasound to um, penetrate tissue. But um, the bottom line is it means that it's a little bit more likely um, that the baby might be born with an anomaly um, or difference that we didn't identify prior to birth. And so it might not be known until after the baby is born and either it's evident or the baby has some kind of complication and then it gets figured out. Um, I'm glad you mentioned ultrasounds because I wanted to ask if there's a difference in prenatal care or healthcare during pregnancy 
I'm thinking of this in particular because I recently read a poster by one of our OBGYN residents here that I think brought, was brought to a conference about you know the frequency of ultrasound during pregnancy for patients who are overweight or obese. And I'm curious if there are other parts of prenatal care that look a little bit different or just kind of what what happens during prenatal care. Yeah, that's great. Um, regarding ultrasounds, um, there's not like a national guideline on how frequently these need to occur. Um, at our institution, these typically are growth ultrasounds um, that we perform, you know, every four weeks or so, kind of starting in the third trimester of pregnancy, looking at how the baby is growing. So that's kind of some additional monitoring that we do here. On a national um, level, it is recommended that um, patients with um, obesity also get kind of antenatal testing, which is where a patient comes in and the baby's heartbeat is kind of watched on the monitor for 20 or so minutes, um, just to make sure that the baby's not having any distress in point of that is because of that higher chance of stillbirth um, so that we can catch something that's going on if, it, if something is happening. In terms of other monitoring, um, kind of like while the patient is in labor, the monitors at our hospital are honestly very, very good, um, but not all hospitals have the um, degree of fetal monitors that we have. And so I've worked places where it's been more challenging to monitor um, the baby in labor meaning that um, we can't tell exactly if the baby is in distress or kind of how the baby is doing. And that can sometimes result in like differences in how we manage the patient. And so you did mention a few um, areas of birth experience that might also be different. So you just mentioned um, fetal monitoring. I'm assuming that's like fetal heart rate monitoring. The fetal heart rate monitor, it's um, for people who've had babies before, this is like the little... um, belts, the straps that go on the abdomen with a little monitor that looks at the baby's heartbeat. Um, Essentially, they're like very small, like little Doppler ultrasounds that um, are portable and can be worn and um, kind of are worn to um, detect the baby's heart rate. And that way we can tell if the baby is developing any kind of distress. Um, You also mentioned an increase in possibility of cesarean section um, and an increase in preterm birth. Are there other things during the birth process that uh, might be different or people might need to be aware of? Regarding kind of the the likelihood of preterm birth, these are kind of both spontaneous and indicated, um, meaning, for example, like the increased chance of preterm birth is also partly because um, of the increased chance of developing things like preeclampsia, which would mean that depending on how severe it is, we might need to actually induce or purposely um, do an earlier delivery um, for the mom's safety. Um, in terms of kind of the cesarean, this this is actually a little less of a slight effect. You know, we think about nationally the overall rate of cesarean, it obviously varies by hospital and state, but it's somewhere between like 20 and 40 percent. However, um, for patients, for example, with a BMI over 50, the rate of cesarean is actually over 60 percent. And that's for a variety of factors, um, you know, but um, is obviously you know, possibly even like doubled the rate of cesarean kind of overall. And so pretty high. We've spent this time talking about kind of some of the possible risks or complications that can be associated with um, higher weight during pregnancy or before pregnancy. We've talked about some options for changing weight before pregnancy. To kind of pull it all together, I, I just want to know what you recommend people think about or do or consider before becoming pregnant, just to make sure that they're going into pregnancy in their best health possible. Like what, what do we need to know and think about and prepare for to head into pregnancy 
at like optimum health that we can achieve? Yeah, great question. Um, so I discuss things like routine health maintenance. Um, you know, for example, if they haven't been to a doc, if someone hasn't been to a doctor in a while, you know, always being screened for things like high blood pressure and diabetes um, because these can impact pregnancy. It's nice to know if they're present. Um, specifically, things like diabetes because um, it has its own list of complications it can cause. And if there is very high circulating blood glucose, that can actually um, affect the developing embryo and then um, fetus and kind of impact like the likelihood of anomalies and things like that. And so knowing about those conditions, if they are present, um, can be good. And also because um, optimizing those conditions, like controlling the diabetes, um, starting insulin or medications to get kind of the average glucose level um, into a normal range, um, can help really optimize not only the patient's health, but also the baby's health um, kind of throughout pregnancy. Um, certainly, I understand that um, it's not that those conditions will be present for everyone, um, but it's worth knowing about if they are present. Um, I also um, emphasize that ideally they would feel about as well as possible. Um, one way to do that is um, by engaging in physical activity. As I mentioned before, I know that this is not a terribly effective way to like necessarily lose weight, but to increase endurance and preparation for pregnancy. Um, pregnancy is a physical thing. Um, there's a lot of cardiovascular and other physiologic changes of pregnancy that um, kind of contribute to fatigue and kind of feeling short of breath. And, um, and honestly, going into pregnancy... Um, in a, you know, uh, having recently been doing like a lot of physical activity or kind of um, increasing one's endurance can be helpful. If someone really wants to lose a lot of weight before pregnancy, then I would consider referring them to like a weight loss clinic. There's, um, there are clinics here in town that um, do medical weight loss with um, medications um, or things like that that are, as I mentioned, generally um, safe to use with a couple of exceptions um, up until like the time of pregnancy. Or if they're I also very specifically asked them about their timeline for pregnancy because if they have enough time, you know, referral to the bariatric surgery clinic is an, a reasonable option as well. Referral there, um, typically um, once someone is in the weight management clinic, is sort of the bariatric surgery clinic, they have um, the patient do kind of a, a number of scheduled visits and also um, do kind of trials of um, physical activity and um, dietary changes and things like that. And they have to be in the program for um, several months um, before surgery can be performed. And so I, I emphasize that that is kind of like a longer term solution. For example, from the time they're sitting in my office until when we would think about pregnancy could be like up to like two and a half to three years because they have to be in the bariatric surgery program for a number of months before they can even get the surgery. And then other than that, you know, I also encourage them to keep in touch with their primary care provider. And I also always ask them about um, kind of the regularity of their periods now and um, sort of um, try to determine whether they're ovulating or whether referral to um, a reproductive endocrinology and infertility specialist, um, you know, would be um, indicated at some point along that journey. Dr. Antoni, thank you so much for joining me on the Women's HealthCast today to talk about weight and healthy pregnancy. It was such a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for having me on the, on the podcast. It's nice to chat. On the next episode of the Women's HealthCast, I am so excited to speak with Dr. Jennifer Lincoln. 
In addition to her practice as an OBGYN physician in Oregon, Dr. Lincoln spends time breaking down sexual and reproductive health myths for her 2.7 million followers on TikTok and Instagram. We will talk about health misinformation and how to figure out if things you read online are true. I hope you can join us for the next episode. The Women's Health Cast is a production of the UW-Madison Department of OBGYN. This episode was produced and engineered by Rob Garza. You can find the Women's Health Cast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WISCOBGYN. Let us know how we're doing. Rate and review us in your podcast app and let us know what health issues you'd like to learn about at the link in our podcast page. Thanks for listening.